You are listening to audio from Redeemer Church in Odessa, Texas. You can connect with us online by visiting RedeemerChurchOdessa.org. Good morning. My name is Jessica, and my husband Jordan and I are in the Bertrand Community Group. This morning, we're going to be reading in Revelation chapter 12, verses 1 through 17. Uh, If you're using your phone, we use the ESV translation, and it will be up on the screen too. Revelation 12, 1 through 17. And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun and with the moon under her feet, and and on her head a crown of twelve stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains in the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven, behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his heads seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth." And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations, with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness, where she has a place prepared by God, in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days." Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come, for the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they loved not their lives even unto death. Therefore, rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath, because he knows that his time is short. And when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. But the woman was given the two wings of the great eagle so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to the place where she is to be nourished for a time and times and half a time. The serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth and after the woman to sweep her away with a flood. But the earth came to the help of the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured from his mouth. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And he stood on the sand of the sea. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Oh, there we go. Uh, thank you, Jessica. Hey, good morning. It's good to be with you. My name is Tanner House. I am the lead pastor here at Redeemer Church. If you're a guest, thank you so much for being here. There's a Connect card uh, on a QR code somewhere scattered throughout the building, or you can 
fill out one of the uh, physical ones that are on the resource wall out there in the back. And if you need a Bible, you can raise your hand. Scotty will bring you one. If you're on your phone or your tablet, we use the ESV. All right, we're getting close to Christmas, and just because we're all friends, I've got to confess a few things. I am somewhat of a Christmas snob. Yes, I am very, very, very snobby. I am highly opinionated about a lot of Christmas stuff. But in particular, I'm a purist when it comes to nativity scenes. Here's what I mean. If you have a nativity scene in your home and baby Jesus is lying in the manger and he's already four years old and he's got his hands up like this, I have an issue with your nativity scene. I also have an issue if your baby Jesus has the halo around his head while he's lying in said manger. And when Kendra and I first got married, she put up our nativity scene in our house, and I grabbed all the wise men, and I moved them to the other room uh, in an effect, in an effort to like make this a little bit more of a biblical reflection of the nativity scene, because the the wise men were not present at the manger. They would come along sometime later. Super snobby. Uh, I also would prefer if your baby Jesus and the royal family, as it were, uh, Jesus, Mary, and Joseph, I'd prefer if they were melanated and not European looking. But I have never in my life seen a nativity scene set up quite like the one that we have in our text today. Perhaps there's a market somewhere for like the heavy metal version of the birth of Christ. Like maybe you've seen this type of nativity scene at Hot Topic in the mall. But I took a risk there. Y'all like that one. Cool. I've not seen this nativity scene at Hobby Lobby. Um, If you're like wanting to like start a side hustle, maybe you make make this in your garage. Like a two-piece nativity scene with a pregnant woman giving birth and a dragon ready to devour the baby. That'd be, that'd be awesome. So, This is the picture that we're given in today's text. When we think about Christmas, when we think about this time of the year, when we think about this season, we don't tend to think of apocalyptic violence. We often tend to think of peace and tranquility. And for the Christian... That is certainly true, but what the birth of Christ means, what it also means is that God and Satan are still in a war. They're still in a cosmic war that existed before creation, and with the birth of Jesus, it means that Satan is defeated. It means that Satan is vanquished. The war isn't starting at Christmas. But the birth of Jesus signals the end for Satan. Our greatest enemy of sin and death has been dealt with. And so this morning, as we continue in this season of Advent, which means coming, as we remember the first Advent of our Savior Jesus, and as we await his second Advent, I want us to consider as God's people yet again that we have a loving and trustworthy God who has kept his promise to his people. And so we're going to look at the last book of the Bible together and see the significance of of Christ's birth. And maybe this is going to be new for some of us. Um, 
I just want to take a look at, at this text and see what the birth of Christ ultimately means for us as believers. So let's pray, and we're going we're gonna to dive in together. Lord Jesus, we need you. Show us our great need for you. Lord, thank you that you came to earth and dwelt among us and put on flesh and endured the cross, Lord. And as we look back at your birth, may we remember that you are also coming again to finish what you started. Lord, help us to rest in the security that is found in you. Help us to rest in our security that has been purchased for us. Church, if you're willing, and ask that you would pray for yourself, that the Lord would bring encouragement where encouragement is needed and conviction where conviction is needed. Lord, we love you. Help us to love you more. Lord, we trust you. Help us to trust you more. It's in your son's name we pray, Jesus. Amen and amen. All right. Revelation 12, beginning in verse 1, it says, And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. So it would not be a good use of our time this morning for me to set up the entire context of the book of Revelation because that requires at least one whole sermon, maybe two in and of itself. And I do hope to get to a series in Revelation in a few years. But here are a few things you need to know as it pertains to our text this morning. Uh, Revelation, the book of Revelation is a picture of the end times. It highlights what will take place prior to and immediately following the return of Jesus as he ushers in the eternal kingdom of a new heaven and a new earth. And Satan and his followers are bound for all eternity. And the believers in Christ from every age will be gathered together in the worship and adoration of Jesus as we enjoy God and his gifts for all eternity. So that's the big picture context of the book of Revelation. And just another thing to mention about the book of Revelation is that so much of it that we read in this book is not meant to be interpreted literally. The genre is an apocalyptic genre, so it's not meant to be read like a book of history or like one of Paul's letters. A lot of this is symbolic. It's symbolic for events or times or places and people but the book as a whole is talking about what it will be like when Jesus literally returns and literally establishes a new heaven and a new earth for all eternity. And it's talking about all these things in signs and symbols. And that is good and praiseworthy. And like a lot of other things in the faith, it is a mystery. The writer of the book of Revelation is the Apostle John, who writes from exile on the island of Patmos, and he writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit the things that he sees in visions, or if you're a Baptist, dreams. So when we get to verse or chapter 12, John says he sees a sign in heaven. 
Most of our verses point to things that happen on the earth. So when John says he sees a sign in heaven, what he is most likely talking about is seeing events unfold in the sky like he's watching it on a big movie screen in the sky. We're first introduced to this woman. Catholics teach that this woman is Mary. But given the context of this passage and the symbolism, it's not pointing to Mary, but rather it is pointing to true Israel, the people of God, the righteous remnant of Jews, as well as believing Gentiles or non-Jews who have been saved by faith in Jesus. So we have this woman She's representative of true Israel. And the text says that she is clothed in the sun and she is standing on the moon. The moon that she is standing on is the Old Testament. It's the Old Testament revelation of reflected light, the sun, that is the New Testament. Meaning this, the Old Testament was given through the law and the prophets to the Jewish people to God's people, God's chosen people in the Old Testament, in order to point them forward to the coming Messiah, Jesus Christ. And like the real actual moon reflects the sun and gives its light, the Old Testament is pointing towards the New Testament about the things concerning Jesus and about the things that are fulfilled in and through Jesus as shown in the New Testament. So the woman then represents the people of God, the people of two covenants. God's covenant, people of the believing Jews in the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, and the church in the New Testament, joined together by faith in the Messiah in the New Covenant. The woman represents Christ's humanity, his human ancestry that incorporates Gentile Christians into the New Covenant. The woman then represents the people of God. And on her head is a crown. She's wearing a crown with 12 stars that symbolizes 12 tribes of Israel in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, 12 apostles. 12 in biblical numbers is a description of God's people. And there's more to this crown. The crown represents victory And that is a symbolic victory. The victory is, the crown is symbolic of our victory that is already ours because we belong to Christ. The victory is already ours because we have been saved by grace through faith. Through Christ, we are victorious. So this crown is ours. This woman is pregnant, she's giving birth. And this birth is a picture, it's a sign of Christ's birth. Jesus has come. Jesus has come in the flesh. And again, we are reminded that God has kept his promise. A few few weeks back, we saw in Genesis 3, at the fall of man, when Adam and Eve sinned, that God said there would be enmity or hostility between the offspring of the woman and Satan. And John is drawing us back to Genesis 3. When God also promised to not leave us as we are. God promised to not leave us dead in sin, but promises to send a rescuer. We needed a rescuer. Because we have inherited a sin nature from our first parents, Adam and Eve. 
We needed a rescuer because we needed a way to be reconciled back to God the Father. And Jesus came. Jesus came. The offspring of the woman, begotten by God, by the Spirit, and lived a perfect, sinless life and died the death that was ours to die. But God has accepted Jesus' sacrifice on our behalf. And so now we will never have to die that death. A child is born. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away our sin through faith and forgiveness. Verse 3, it says, And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his head seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. We're introduced to another character through another sign, a dragon. The text says a great dragon, which means big and powerful. And this dragon is red, which in the scriptures is a color of war. This dragon appears. But it's not just any normal dragon. This dragon has seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns. Verse 9 will show us that this dragon is Satan. He's the devil. He's the ancient serpent. And the heads and the crowns and the horns, they represent his power and his authority. The crown, however is merely for show. One commentator says that the crowns represent nothing but pretend royalty, a dominion without any real justification for it. There will be more on that in a second. But let's look at his activity. The dragon's tail knocks a third of the stars out of the sky. This is symbolic of a war that breaks out when Satan and his angels rebelled against God. And a third of the angels that had followed him before creation, they were cast out of heaven and they became demons and cast down to earth. And the dragon is standing by the woman as she is about to give birth in order that the dragon can devour this child. This is the story of Satan since creation. He has, from the moment that the enmity has been put into place between the offspring of Eve and himself, he has been trying to exterminate Eve's godly offspring. He knows that God has promised that one of the offspring of Eve would crush his head, and so he has been bruising the heel, as God said, from the beginning. In the Old Testament, in the first half of the Bible, we see this in many places. But here are a few examples. Immediately after Adam and Eve leave the garden, their kids, Cain and Abel, Cain kills Abel. Then we get to Exodus. Pharaoh drowns all the male children of the Hebrews, God's people. King Saul throws a spear at David. The book of Esther, we have this man, Haman, who plotted to exterminate all the Jewish people in Persia. 
And around the time of the birth of Christ, Herod the Great was slaughtering baby boys up to two years old in Bethlehem in order to try to kill Jesus. And the efforts of Satan to rub out the righteous line of Christ have all failed. In the Garden of Eden, where God created a place for man to dwell with him, but as sin entered in, there was prophesied to be enmity or hostility between the woman and the serpent, and between his offspring and hers. And Satan knows that with the birth, life, and ascension of Jesus, he is defeated. So he waits. He's waiting here to try to win the war against God. And look what happens. Look at verse 5. It says, She gave birth to a male child, one who was to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness, where she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. Satan does not succeed. The woman gives birth, and her son is the promised one. The one who will rule and reign for all eternity, and this son is immediately caught up to God and to his throne, where he will take his seat as the rightful ruler. It says Jesus rules with an iron rod, using it against those who rise up against him, And he rules with an iron rod as a loving shepherd who loves and cares for his sheep and protects them from harm. The child is snatched up to heaven. We have in view here the birth and the ascension of Jesus. When Jesus is raised up, the ascension, when Jesus is raised up to heaven 40 days after his resurrection, this is in view. But John makes no mention of the death, the cross, the resurrection of Jesus. And here's why. For some reason, and I have no idea why this is the case, church and preachers and Bible studies and stuff don't do a good enough job talking about the ascension of Jesus as an important event in the redemptive work of Jesus. At least that's been my observation. I could be wrong. But we don't talk about the ascension of Christ enough. But without the ascension... The Holy Spirit would have no cause to descend into the hearts of Christians to lead and guide and reign and rule in our hearts. Christ's Spirit, though, now, because of the ascension, dwells inside of us. We have Christ in us. But also, without the ascension, the death and the resurrection of Jesus aren't as significant because without the ascension... Jesus doesn't take his place as the ruler of the nations. And therefore, the defeat of Satan would not be final and ultimate. Without the ascension, Christ doesn't sit on his throne. Jesus has to ascend into heaven to take his seat on the throne of God in order to proclaim victory over Satan and in order to rule and reign. And that is good news for us that he is reigning with authority. So John is showing us at the birth of Jesus and at the ascension of Jesus, Satan is defeated. The birth of Jesus is bookended with the ascension of Jesus to show us that the war against sin and death has been won. Both Jesus' birth and Jesus' ascension means 
that Satan is defeated. Prior to the birth of Jesus, we see Satan trying to destroy the line from which Jesus would come, and he fails. Then we see him trying to attack Jesus at his birth, and he fails. Then we see this woman, representative of the church, representing the church, fleeing into the desert to be cared for. The text says she is going to be nourished by God. The woman is in the desert. The woman is not living a luxurious life, but she's being persecuted by Satan. But we have a God who has kept his promises to us. And so while we may be persecuted for being Christians, while we may be attacked by the enemy, while we may be suffering, perhaps not even as a result of sin in your life, if you belong to Christ, you have the assurance that Satan's efforts against you will ultimately fail as well. Because the church belongs to God. His people belong to him. God cares for you. Christian, you belong to God. Satan's crown has no power. Satan's crown has no authority over us. We may be pressed on every side. We may be persecuted. But God is with us. We are not abandoned. Listen, I hope this comforts you. I hope this comforts you and doesn't make you gritty and cynical in the other direction. God is sovereign over your suffering. And while God is sovereign, sovereign over your suffering, God is also empathetic and loving and kind to you in the midst of it. God is inviting you in the midst of suffering to draw near to him. God is even sovereign over Satan's persecution of you. All that is done, all that is done, all the suffering you're experiencing is taking place under God's watchful eye in order to, listen, dare I say suffering can be good for you, all of this is done in order to bring about your perfection and Christ's glory, in order that our faith in Christ may increase, which is the goal of Christianity, that we love Jesus more, that our lives are more reflective of his lives, and that we know him more and more and more. So when we are in the desert, meaning when we are struggling, when we are suffering, when we feel alone, when we feel isolated, when our lives feel like we are in a barren land, we are meant to be completely dependent upon the Lord. Because God will provide everything that we need. We may be persecuted. We may even suffer but we will be provided for. And he will sustain us because God has promised to never leave us or forsake us. 
God has preserved a line to bring salvation into the world. He has met our greatest need. He will not fail you. We have his word, and we have his church, and we have the Holy Spirit living inside of us. Therefore, we can trust him to finish the good work that he began in us. Let's keep going. Verse 7. Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated. And there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down. The ancient serpent, who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world, he was thrown down to the earth. And his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come, for the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they loved not their lives even unto death. Therefore, rejoice. Rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O sea and earth, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath, because he knows his time is short. A war breaks out in heaven between Michael the archangel and Satan and his demons, and Satan is defeated and he is thrown out of heaven. Verse 9 calls him the deceiver of the world, and he has been thrown out of heaven. Verse 10 tells us that the accuser, that's Satan, the accuser who accuses us, who accuses our brothers and sisters before God day and night, has been thrown down out of heaven, out of the presence of God the Father forever. And this is significant for you. Let me tell you why. Um, this is significant for you because there is some biblical evidence that even as Satan has rebelled against God and was thrown out of heaven, he still had access to God. And none of this would not have happened had God not allowed it, but Satan, it seems like, could kind of come and go and approach God as he pleased. Maybe he had to schedule an appointment. I don't know. But like he could still, he still had a hearing with God. So if you consider the book of Job, for example, we have a recorded dialogue for us between God and Satan. Satan, it seems, would approach God and hurl accusations against believers to God. And if we're honest, they're all probably accurate accusations. Satan is a liar, but we're all depraved wretches. And we're all so wicked. And while I don't know exactly what Satan may or may not have been saying, the fact of the matter is that Jesus had to come and die for our brokenness. I don't really need to be reminded of how awful I'd be apart from Christ. Just me? Cool. All right. The point is this, though. Because of the birth of Jesus, a decisive blow has been delivered to Satan. Because of Christ's death and resurrection, because of the perfect life of Jesus, who took our sin upon himself and died the death that was ours to die because of our rebellion against God, 
Jesus still came. And he came and died in your place and he rose. Your forgiveness has been purchased. Your debt has been paid. He took our sin and gave us his righteousness in exchange. And Jesus has ascended. And the war is over. Satan has been cast out. So now, and this is why it's significant, now Satan can no longer accuse you before God. Jesus' blood speaks, not your guilt. Jesus' blood speaks, not your guilt. Jesus' blood speaks over your life, not your guilt. It's not your guilt that speaks, it's your forgiveness. God does not listen to the lies of the accuser, but he sees the blood of Jesus that covers you. With the ascension of Jesus, the redemptive work of Jesus is complete once and for all. If you are a Christian, you have a new identity. With the accuser being banished, salvation has taken its place. And you are no longer guilty, but a child of God. Listen to me. If you struggle with fear... If you struggle with guilt, if you struggle with shame, if you struggle with doubt, if you struggle with condemnation, none of that is from the Lord. None of that is from the Lord. And if you are a Christian, you can confidently rest in the completed work of Jesus on your behalf. Verse 12 tells those who dwell in heaven to rejoice and have rest. This is your position now. It's not just a future reality, but if you belong to Christ, you are seated with Christ now. Listen to me. You are more than your fear. You are more than your guilt. You are more than your sin. You are worth more than the lies that Satan convinces you to believe about yourself. You belong to a great Savior who has conquered your sin and our ancient foe has been defeated. But in the meantime, we're still engaged in a war. Let's look at verse 13. And when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. But the woman was given the two wings of the great eagle so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to the place where she is to be nourished for a time and times and half a time. The serpent poured, out, poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with a flood. But the earth came to, help, to the help of the woman and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river and the dragon, that the dragon had poured from his mouth. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And he stood on the sand of the sea. Now Satan has already been defeated, but there will come a day when he is bound for all eternity in hell. With him will be his demons and those whose faith is not in Christ. 
There have been a couple of references to time that the woman will spend in the desert. This adds up to three and a half years. Please, please, please don't think too much about that today or you'll start fighting with uh, like your grandparents on the rapture. So don't, don't uh, think about that too much right now. That's not the point of this sermon. Um, the point of this sermon, the point of the time, is to tell us that Satan has power on earth and he knows that his time is short, and he knows that his time is coming to an end, and there will be a day when he is finally bound. But until that day, knowing he is defeated, and therefore knowing he has really nothing left to lose, Satan wages war with the offspring of the woman, the church, those who follow God. His goal is to turn you away from Christ. His goal is to lead you into a snare of sin. Dudes, his goal is to make you passive. We have been promised protection. And we have been promised provision from God our Father through the Son by the Holy Spirit. But we have to walk in faith and in obedience and dependency to him who loves us and died for us. If you don't, if you walk in your sin, if you consistently walk in a way that isn't honoring God, if you are never in the word, if you walk in isolation away from God and the bride, the church, you will be picked off by Satan. And you will wander away into sin. And you will get so far down the road and wonder how you got here. This doesn't mean that you can lose your salvation but that you must keep pursuing Christ in order to be prepared for the battle. The text is not promising you easy, but the text is promising you protection in the battle. But like a good soldier, you must be training yourselves in righteousness. What this passage of Scripture teaches us is that Satan is very powerful. And he is a deceiver. And he will convince you that there is something better. That's as old as Adam and Eve. He will ultimately be defeated, yes. But in the meantime, he is out to devour you. Yet we have the cross. We have the resurrection. We have the ascension of Jesus. So now, because of the Holy Spirit, we can fight daily against sin and against the enemy. What the birth of Christ shows us is that God is for us. What the birth of Christ teaches us is that God has kept his promises. But what the birth of Christ also shows us is that the war will be won in the end, but that there is still a struggle between good and evil, between believers and Satan. And some of us just don't fight very well. When you aren't in the word, and when you don't pray, and when you're not walking through life with other believers, you are like a sheep that has wandered away from the safety of the flock. The calling of Christmas is an invitation. It's a reminder to abide in Christ, who has come to dwell with us. At Christ's birth, the heavens exploded in praise. 
And at his ascension, he takes his throne and will finish what he started. But do you believe that? And are you living like you really believe that? Are you walking in sin? Are you walking in unbelief? Or are you trusting in the Lord for your provision? If you are consumed with fear and doubt and shame and guilt, I'd call you to consider your time in the Word and in prayer. Are you really delighting in Jesus? That's the promise of Christmas. Jesus, our great Emmanuel, our God with us, came in love for us and in obedience to the Father. He has come to set us free, and so many of us don't live in the wonder that our God became a man to save us. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. He loves us too much to let us remain as we were. Lost, hopeless, separated from him. That is the invitation for you. If you don't believe in Jesus as your Lord and Savior, the invitation for you is life. Christ came to earth and endured the cross on your behalf. He has purchased your pardon before God and in love is inviting you into his family. And if you don't believe, I beg you to consider this Jesus this morning. The text shows us that we have a God who fights for us. But this text also shows us that there will come a day when the time to respond will be gone. Don't miss your Messiah. Christians, the invitation for you is the same. To walk in life, to walk in freedom, to walk in faith, to walk in forgiveness, and not just passively accept that Christ was born in a manger. But really understand why Christ had to come to give you life and to purchase your pardon because you were so broken and your response then is faith and dependency. May we walk in faith. May we walk in repentance. And may we learn to worship and delight in Christ in spite of our sin and in spite of our struggle because he is with us. And he is for us. Let's pray.